This is not normal. None of it is normal. None of this is politics as usual. None of this is anything as, as usual. No, it's not, is it? It still isn't. Still not normal. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFO on KFOI in Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and Cottage Grove on KSO in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. This just in from Huffington Post. Desi Doyen, I don't even think you've heard this one yet. Uh, no, I don't think I have. President Donald Trump, you have heard of him, is yes. considering <laughs> naming his son-in-law, Jared Kushner... No. As White House Chief of Staff. Wow. That according to uh, HuffPost, just moments before we got on air, boy, nobody wants this job, do they? This used to be the peach, the the, the perch, the the top uh, position, the pearl, yes, uh, in Washington, D.C. White House Chief of Staff, and yet nobody wants it. So that uh, Trump reportedly is considering his son-in-law because we're not banana republic enough already. One unnamed top Republican close to the White House told HuffPost that Kushner had met with Trump about the job on Wednesday. Isn't he supposed to be solving the Middle East and uh, uh, and everything else? And everything else, yes. Okay. Well, if he's chief of staff, he'll be in uh, an even better position to uh, <laughs> solve all the world's problems. Uh, Also, two unnamed sources, quote, close to Trump or the White House, confirmed Kushner's interest in the position. One unnamed source told HuffPost that uh, Kushner had been, quote, pushing his own candidacy with Trump. CBS News's Major Garrett also reported that Kushner was under consideration. So we will see. That's just breaking. Um... Okay, uh, coming up a little bit later is uh, Desi Doyen will be here to depress everyone with (laughs) the latest Green News report. Yes, it's my specialty. You do that well. 
But before we get there, uh, we've got a lot to try to get to and cover today, including, uh, as seems the case every day now, new news out of the North Carolina GOP election fraud boondoggle where there is almost certain now to be a new election uh, thanks to a Republican Party contractor being paid for absentee ballot fraud by the Republican candidate in that race who unofficially won the U.S. House seat by just 905 votes in November in a race that the state election board there has refused to certify as the uh, investigation into the GOP fraud continues, the Republican majority state legislature has now taken some action in response to all of this. I will explain in a little bit, along with some other election related news. But first, uh, some listener mail to Bradcast at Bradblog.com from Rick G regarding our coverage of former Trump lawyer and fixer Michael Cohn and his sentencing on Wednesday to three years in prison and some two million dollars in fines for various uh, various charges, including one that implicates at least one that implicates Donald Trump as essentially a so far unindicted co-conspirator to direct a scheme that violated campaign finance laws in his uh, hush money payoffs to two women just before the 2016 election with whom he had had uh, affairs in order, according to prosecutors and to Cohn and to everybody else other than the president, in order to affect the election itself. That after Cohn is said to be cooperating with prosecutors, at least partially, on the charges brought by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan and by Special Counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors as part of uh, the uh, Trump-Russia probe, where Cohn has uh, pleaded guilty for lying to Congress in that case about covering up a proposed deal to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Okay, so... It's uh, so complicated it that in order to, to round up the story, that's how long that's it takes. That's what it takes. So Rick G. writes to me to say, Hi, Brad. Regarding Michael Cohn's sentence... You called it a serious one. Remember, as pundicated on MSNBC, there were multiple crimes pleaded to by Cohn, including tax fraud, that had nothing to do with Trump. If it were only Trump-related crimes, it probably would have been much less time. And he makes good point. I did note that, uh, you know, given the fact that Cohn was cooperating on all of these things and still got three years, imagine what the guy who directed the conspiracy related, at least to the hush money payoffs, that would be Donald Trump, um, what what he could be facing, depending on how things move forward. Anyway, Rick says it is important not to go too fast on this thing. Too fast. It's been two years at this point. How much slower could it go? He said, like digging up a big, ugly weed, one must dig deep under the roots to make sure it doesn't come back again. I'm enjoying the drip by drip nature of the slow forming ring of justice. I'm not yeah, I personally. Know. Easy for you to say, Rick. You don't have to cover it every day. But to but... continue with Rick's metaphor, however, yes, you do have to get all the way down to the end of the roots of this monstrosity of a weed that he's talking about. But also you have to be able to pull it up so that everybody can look at it and agree that it's a weed and had to be pulled out. So that's just to use his he, metaphor. He concludes by saying there is so much more to come. Therefore, I'm hoping to avoid premature 
ejectulation. <laughs> Best, Rick G. Thank you for that note. Uh, Rick, you are uh, correct. I, I appreciate your uh, your thoughts here. President Donald Trump said on Thursday that the criminal conviction of his former fixer, Michael Cohn, is a plot to embarrass him. Uh, it took him a while before he responded to uh, anything that happened on Wednesday in that federal courtroom. Uh, referring to the campaign violations in question related to hush money payments, he said, they put that on to embarrass me. This was in uh, a Fox News interview today. They're not criminal charges. What happened is either Cohn or the prosecutors, in order to embarrass me, said, listen, I'm making this deal for reduced time and everything else. Do me a favor and put these two charges on. There is no evidence that the charges were an attempt to embarrass the president, uh, whether they did or not, whether he's actually capable of embarrassment. I don't know. That implies that, uh, you know, he has the ability to be shamed. That's another question here. But uh, earlier in the day, in, in his very first public response to Cohn's sentencing on, uh, on Wednesday, Trump unleashed a lengthy tweet storm wherein he said, Quote, I never directed Michael Cohn to break the law. He was a lawyer and he is supposed to know the law. It's called advice of counsel and a lawyer has great liability if a mistake is made. That's why they get paid. Despite that, many campaign finance lawyers have strongly stated that I did nothing wrong with respect to campaign finance laws, if they even apply, because this was not campaign finance, he said. Well, federal prosecutors and the judge and Michael Cohn and the publishers of the National Enquirer, AMI, are now all on record disagreeing with Donald Trump there, stating that the hush money payoffs were indeed meant to affect the election, paid as they were just before the, uh, the 2016 election. But as Rick G. suggests, we'll not rush. Hopefully we will speak Tomorrow, I hope, on the broadcast with a campaign finance law expert on what exactly Donald Trump may or may not ha be held liable here for, uh, either criminally or civilly, civilly or at all, since a sitting president of the United States, in theory, cannot be indicted. But I'm not so sure about that and whether that should remain the case. Uh, any event, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow because there's a lot coming down the line here. It is now becoming an annual holiday tradition, it seems like, at this point. No, not the White House Christmas party uh, for the press, which Donald Trump has reportedly canceled this year. So thanks, Grinch. Don't want to hang out with those folks for some reason. I don't know why he would cancel that party. But no, not not the parties, uh, the annual holiday federal government shutdown threat. Merry Christmas. In case it wasn't already clear, Republicans today signaled that they have absolutely no plan at this point to avoid a government shutdown next week after President Trump put them on the spot with his Oval Office outburst uh, earlier this week during that televised spat with House Speaker-to-be Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, wherein the unhinged president, as you will recall, volunteered that he, he, would be happy to take the blame for a government shutdown. Republicans were not happy to hear that. 
if uh, if Democrats were unwilling to allocate some five billion dollars in a government funding bill toward the wall with Mexico that Trump has said hundreds of times would be paid for by Mexico, not by the U.S. taxpayers. In a testy exchange today on the floor of the U.S. House, Republican House Majority Leader, soon to become the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, uh, repeatedly failed to lay out what his party plans to do, how they will pass government funding, And uh, McCarthy blamed everyone but his own caucus as he quarreled with the House Minority Leader, I'm sorry, House Minority Whip, Steny Hoyer, uh, soon to become the House Majority Leader. And they had this uh, this little uh, spat on the House floor, according to TPM's Cameron Joseph. McCarthy, still the House Majority Leader, uh, said, my plan uh, to do that to pass a government government uh, funding bill is I need 60 votes in the Senate, putting the onus on the other chamber to come up with a plan. He said, I guess my plan is you don't want to work with us. He sputtered uh, at Hoyer, according to Joseph. Uh, Hoyer retorted, if the plan is we just give up after agreeing to 99 percent of other funding, that is no plan at all. In fact, It will be up to the Senate because uh, even if House Republicans can somehow manage to ram through a government spending bill that includes Trump's demand of five billion dollars for border wall construction, Republicans don't have the votes in the Senate for such a plan where they would need about 10 Democrats to go along with it. So this is all kind of nuts. They have no plan, and we're barreling once again towards government shutdown. Trump declared that the House Republicans at least could pass his preferred plan, but it is not clear at this point that that is even true, given that uh, there are a lot of retiring and defeated GOP members who have not been showing up for votes recently at all. They may not have the numbers to even pass this through the House as Nancy Pelosi had argued back in that uh, crazy meeting in the Oval Office with Donald Trump. Nearly two dozen uh, Republican uh, lawmakers apparently have been missing votes in the House, and they are reportedly not eager to hang around a Capitol in which they don't even have offices uh, just to help their leaders pass a messaging bill. Apparently they lose their offices when they get voted out or when they retire and, you know, after the election, when the new people come in to replace them. So, yeah, this is what Nancy Pelosi was trying to say. She said uh, uh, t- this morning, once again, she said they do not have the votes to pass president the president's proposal for a $5 billion uh, spending on the wall. Lawmakers, meantime, were scrambling for airports today. They aren't scheduled to be back again until next Wednesday, which is just one day before funding for a quarter of the government runs out on December 21. Uh, They have been told they may need to come back earlier, but uh, while McCarthy would not admit it yet, uh, others are reportedly conceding that there is no path forward here. So long as Trump continues to insist on more border wall funding uh, and as long as Democrats refuse to vote for it. Republican Tom Cole of Oklahoma told TPM, you don't start 
uh, worrying this time of the year. You do start worrying this time of the year, particularly with members leaving, whether they will come back for a vote if they are called back early, particularly when you uh, when whether you pass it or not, there's no reason to believe that it'll actually pass the U.S. Senate. So why should they come rushing back at this time of year? when even if they do pass it in the House, it's unlikely to pass in the Senate. Cole expressed frustration that a $3.3 billion disagreement on the wall funding was holding up what amounts to a $400 billion agreed-upon spending bill for the entire government. And yes, it's it's actually only about $3.3 billion that we're talking about here because the Democrats already agreed to spend, I think it's $1.6 billion on border security in this bill. And by the way, that is exactly what the White House budget proposal had actually asked for in their own budget request originally. So don't blame the Dems. uh, Blame Trump's Office of Management and uh, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney because that's what he included in the White House budget proposal and the Democrats have already agreed to it. Pelosi uh, said that uh, right now a shorter term agreement to fund the government through next September is the most likely option, which means that Donald Trump will lose again if that happens, unless he refuses to sign it and shuts down the federal government as he continues to threaten to do. Uh, The White House announced today, by the way, that Donald Trump plans to go to Mar-a-Lago over the holidays for 16 days this year. Uh, That's an increase from the uh, 12 days that he spent there last year. But as of now, Trump seems uh, hell bent on uh, not accepting any bill uh, unless it has this additional funding in it. And uh, Democrats have said this is a non-starter and they're not going to let it pass in the Senate. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Now, Cam Joseph notes that unless Trump or Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer can come to an agreement in the coming days, a shutdown now looks likely. And, of course, I would worry about Chuck Schumer's ability to hang tough there. He tends to fold like a cheap suit. I agree, he does. He doesn't fold like a cheap suit, I guess. He folds like a house of car- like a deck <laughs> of cards, but you fold. Either way, he folds. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi insists the only obstacle here is the president of the United States. So Merry Christmas and happy government shutdown for the new year. Uh, Maybe. We'll see. And again, I well, we'll see how Schumer holds up again. I fail to understand why there are all these complaints about Nancy Pelosi and not Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Uh, But I think that's because it's Republicans know that Nancy Pelosi is rather effective and they've been targeting her not chuck schumer who folds like choose your metaphor here <laughs> by the way didn't you des predict that donald trump would uh, fold for uh, would blink first on this one i in did your prediction earlier in the week and yeah. there's still time yeah. i mean at some point there's still time for someone's got to blink yeah. i know and a lot of we'll people see. are going to be harmed in the meantime if the government does shut down people who depend say you know for their checks yep All right. uh, More Republicans around the country now seem to be taking a page from Donald Trump uh, by specifically attacking media outlets directly by name, specifically media outlets who report unflattering things about them. Uh, So I guess if you can't respond to the message, discredit the messenger or at least try to. That seems to be the uh, Republican plan these days to deal with increasingly bad press 
for their increasingly horrible and unpopular and corrupt governance around the country. Kentucky Tea Party Governor Matt Bevin was apparently outraged when he learned that award-winning independent news outlet ProPublica will be supporting investigative journalism at a local newspaper over the course of the next year. And uh, Bevin posted this kind of insane video on Wednesday night attacking both the local paper, that would be the Louisville Courier-Journal, and ProPublica, in uh, their funding model, uh, complete with a dig at billionaire donor George Soros, who is now a favorite target of anti-Semites and right-wingers, as well as anti-Semitic right-wingers, um, ProPublica, yeah. As well as Governor Matt Bevin. <laughs> and now Matt Bevin. ProPublica has launched a, a new program this year to help support investigative journalism at 14 different newsrooms around the country. The uh, Courier, Courier Journal is one of them. Bevin's tweet with this uh, video that he posted uh, stated in all caps, outrageous ProPublica, a left wing activist group funded by the likes of George Soros, is now funding, quote, investigative reporting at the Courier Journal. Is this the future of journalism? Who is holding the Courier Journal accountable? Not clear what it is that uh, they would be holding him, holding them accountable for. In any event, here's uh, here's Bevin's video. It's kind of fun. Hi, this is Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin. Uh, news flash that came today from the Courier Journal. They've announced uh, with breathless excitement that they are partnering partnering with an organization called ProPublica. And this is the same Courier Journal, mind you, which, while it's dying, continues to maintain that they are unbiased, that they are good journalists, and that they are interested in transparency and holding government, among other people, accountable. Well, who's holding the Courier Journal accountable? For what? Who's doing any kind of analysis of who this ProPublica is? I'll tell you who ProPublica is. It was started by Herb and Marion Sandler. These are people who made billions of dollars doing subprime lending, taking advantage of people that couldn't afford to pay these back, destroying thousands of lives, destroying Wachovia Bank in the process, but they profited off of people who had nothing and have even less now. And these people made billions and are now funneling that ill-gained money into left-leaning organizations like ProPublica. Now ProPublica is partnering up with the Courier-Journal to pay the salaries of the Courier-Journal's investigation of some organization within Kentucky. Hmm. Now they're not going to be transparent about what that is. They're not going to be transparent about their partner. They're not going to be transparent about the fact that these same Sandlers are big supporters of the ACLU, that other bastion of conservative thinking or fair-mindedness, the very same ACLU that repeatedly sues the Commonwealth of Kentucky and our legislators for the bills that they pass. <laughs> this is also an organization supported by bills. George I Hate America Soros. <laughs> I mean, this is the sad reality of who the Courier-Journal, which pretends that it's an actual news organization or a publication, is so remarkably biased, they are now full in bed with this particular organization, ProPublica. Check out the links at the bottom of this page. You can do your own homework on this. But now the Courier-Journal has just straight up said, we don't even care about being objective. We're willing for a price because we'll sell our soul. We'll be a sock puppet for the 
ProPublica organization, for George Soros, for the Sandlers, for all these other people who hate America and undermine day in and day out the values that we in Kentucky actually hold dear, that America mm. was founded on. Shame mm -hmm. on you, Courier Journal. Shame. It's not even serious that you should, I mean, the fact that you take yourself seriously is, is remarkable to me. And this is why so many people in Kentucky no longer give you the time of day. It's why I encourage everybody to just disregard the nonsense that comes ah. out of this biased left-wing organization. Ah. The Courier Journal is a sad shadow of what it once was. It's a shame. It was once a great organization. Our state could use good news media. We don't have it, certainly not from the Courier Journal. We are Kentucky. <laughs> you mad, bro? Uh, apparently, uh, now ignore. He wants you to just ignore whatever it is that comes out of the Courier Journal. George, I hate America Soros, he called him. I'm not sure I've ever heard uh, George Soros say, I hate America. I haven't heard him say much of anything, There's actually. There's a reason why. It's because he hasn't. Yeah. So anyway, as you may imagine, there is more to this story. Uh, first, ProPublica, of course, shot back at uh, in response to this video on uh, Wednesday in a Twitter response of their own, uh, writing, very nice to meet you too, Governor Matt Bevan. You asked who ProPublica is, we thought we'd give you some answers. Like everything we do, they are, you know, actually accurate. First, we're thrilled to be partnering with the fine folks at the Courier-Journal. They're just one of 14 newsrooms we'll be supporting. The paper's reporting project is very promising. We won't say more because we believe in gathering facts first. You heard him reference that investigation that they're talking about, that they won't say anything what it is. Yeah. That's because they're working on an investigation. Uh, he said, we noticed you mentioned two of our donors who just happened to be Jewish. So here are a few facts about our funding. We had 34,000 donors last year. George Soros provided less than 2% of our revenue. You called us a, quote, biased left-wing organization. Actually, we believe in evidence, hard, indisputable evidence, carefully gathered and precisely told. Perhaps that's why our peers have given us four, four Pulitzer Prizes, three Peabody's, two Emmys, six Polks, a DuPont, and a National Magazine Award. Anyway, we certainly hope we can keep the dialogue going. Governor Bevan will be in touch with questions and would love your answers. I have a feeling he won't be answering that. You think? Uh, they add, P.S., our new partners at the Courier-Journal have been doing lots of good work, like this recent story about how Governor Matt Bevan hired a buddy for a government job and then gave him a $215,000 raise. Nice work if you can get it, yes. if you're a friend of the governor, Apparently, Governor Bevan. Yeah, they uh, link to the story, which I wouldn't have otherwise seen. So uh, thank you, Governor, for pointing this out. This is from back in uh, September. Kentucky lawmakers were stunned when the Courier-Journal reported that Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan gave his old Army buddy and business associate, Charles Grindle, a $215,000 pay raise. On August 1, a highly unusual 134% increase. After less than one year on the job, the raise also came four months after the passage of a state budget that included no pay increases for more than 42,000 Kentucky public school teachers and most of the state's nearly 30,000 state workers. Bevin told reporters, 
last week, this was uh, back in September, uh, that he personally recruited Grindle. Uh, he didn't do a national search. He just hired uh, this guy who happens to have been an old buddy, an old Army buddy who retired uh, last year as a colonel at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, he was hired for the critical job of managing state government's technology needs. Grindle started work of in October of 2017. And by September of this year, as executive of the Commonwealth Office of Technology, he now receives a whopping $375,000 per year for a state IT job. Nice. Bevan said, I've known him for some time. But he wouldn't say how long he'd known Grindle. Neither Bevan nor Grindle uh, responded to repeated requests for information about their relationship and any role that it might have played in Grindle's hiring and his rapid increase in pay. The Courier-Journal, however, learned that the two of them have a relationship, both a friendship and a business relationship that dates back nearly 30 years they had uh, when he was asked when Bevan was asked by the Courier Journal if he would take questions about Grindle as he was uh, walking away from a bill signing ceremony. He said, no, we don't. We, uh, we why don't we talk about things people care about? I don't know. I, I think people uh, specifically Kentucky voters who will be voting next year when Bevins is running for re-election in the state's 2019 off-year elections, I think they may care about this, particularly in a state where the teachers were forced to walk, remember, were forced to walk off the job earlier this year because the GOP state legislature had failed to adequately fund education and teacher salaries and pensions for the teachers before being essentially forced to do so thanks to the teachers who walked out. Those teachers and the folks who support them, they may care to know why one of Bevan's old pals here, a guy who worked for the state for less than a year, received more than $200,000 on top of his already hefty salary after just one year on the job. Maybe that's why Matt Bevan is now going on uh, on Twitter with video and saying, just ignore everything you read from the Courier-Journal. Pay no attention. These are not the facts you are looking for uh, and the evidence you are looking for. Anyway, it's a uh, it's a long, detailed, independently verifiable report over there at the Louisville Courier Journal from uh, Tom Loftus and Morgan Watkins uh, that apparently Matt Bevan would like to discredit very much. So we'll include a link to that report when we post today's broadcast at bradblog.com in case anybody in Kentucky may have missed it. And, you know, it's a good reminder. Support your local newspaper. They do good work. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will uh, come back with some of the other continuing messes around the country, including, yes, in North Carolina, that and Michigan, I think, are ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, where we excel at fine messes, it seems. Um, I have been arguing on this show for some time that if a new election was called for in North Carolina's 9th U.S. House congressional district race due to the evidence of pretty massive uh, absentee ballot fraud by a GOP contractor there on behalf of the Republican candidate, Mark Harris, that they would not only have to have a new general election, but they'd also have to start over from scratch with a new primary election because the very same GOP contractor hired by the very same Republican House candidate, Mark Harris, appears to have carried out the very same type of absentee ballot fraud scheme in Bladen County, North Carolina, in the primary as he did in the general election. In the GOP primary, Mark Harris reportedly defeated incumbent Republican Congressman Robert Pittenger by about 800 votes, which is even fewer votes than he was said to have defeated Democrat Dan McCready. In the general election, in that case, it was just 905 votes in the uh, November midterm general election, which the State Board of Elections in North Carolina have yet to certify due to the evidence of fraud on Harris's behalf. So while the state board could call for a new election, according to state law, it has been somewhat unclear if they could also call for a new primary as well. Well, now... With the uh, GOP itself uh, conceding that there will likely be no choice but to have a new election here, given everything that we have been learning over the past several weeks and covering on this show day by day, drip by drip, uh, with all of the irregularities that have been discovered uh, so far, um, the Republican-controlled legislature has now made it clear that there also likely needs to be, yes, a new primary election called. With ballot fraud allegations hanging over a disputed North Carolina U.S. House race, uh, AP reports today state lawmakers have agreed to change the way such do-over congressional elections are to be handled. The state House and Senate has now voted. Uh, they voted on Wednesday to require new primary elections in addition to a new general election if the state elections board decides to, uh, that a, a redo is needed because ballot irregularities or other problems in a congressional contest cast the true outcome into doubt. The Republican elect, I'm sorry, the primary election requirement. Uh, is contained in a measure that reworks who oversees the enforcement of state elections. It changes the way the state board of elections are structured. Uh, this bill is now heading to uh, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's desk. And yes, this primary election requirement would apply to the current 9th Congressional District race. Uh, there is a hearing that you probably know uh, coming up at least on or before December 21, although it could happen after now, according to the state uh, board of elections regarding the ninth district and the evidence that has been found so far. Um, after that meeting, the board could call for a new election in the ninth district. Uh, and as the state law currently is, they could not necessarily call for a primary race. Both primary and general elections are required when a North Carolina U.S. House seat is officially declared to be vacant. But that is not the case here. 
at least not necessarily. I suppose they could wait until uh, January 3rd when the uh, new House new session of Congress begins and then they could say it's uh, vacant and maybe call a primary. But this bill, if it is signed by the governor, should clear everything up. The new directive would allow uh, would align uh, with what the governor is required to do when there's an official vacancy. So now it will be just as if there was a vacancy and they would start over from scratch. The GOP sponsor of this bill said that holding new primaries in the ninth also made sense because uh, it appears that the absentee ballots were also an issue in the primary back in May, where Harris won 96 percent of the mail-in ballots in Bladen County. He got more than 400 votes there, while the incumbent Republican, Robert Pittenger, received just 17 in the primary. Uh, That was a a narrow victory over Pittenger back in May. Uh, The legislation would open the door to uh, Pittenger himself or anyone else running again in the primary. Remember when I offered that irresponsible prediction (laughs) a few days ago uh, after all of this had come to light that the incumbent Republican could end up back in his old seat after all? That's now beginning to look more feasible. Indeed, it does. And I think it also goes to the benefit of the Republicans in North Carolina, because I believe that the guy who was reportedly elected under this election fraud scheme is tainted. Mark Harris? Yeah, Mark Harris. I don't think they want him. And if there were a new election, voters would probably not choose the guy that was implicated in election fraud scandal. Mm, They'd probably choose a Democrat. So if you give them a chance to choose a different Republican, a better Republican, a different Republican, then that's what they would have that chance to preserve their ability to hold on to that. So you're saying they're doing this just to save themselves. They're doing it just to save themselves, but it does redound to their benefit. In the uh, general election, Bladen, where the uh, GOP contractor in question was based, um, Bladen was the only county among the eight within the ninth district where Harris won a majority of mail-in absentee ballots over the Democrat McCready uh, in the general election. And uh, without those, uh, whatever he did to the absentee ballots, it seems the Democrat uh, likely would have won. Now, the measure affecting the ninth district race here is part of broader legislation that could finally end a two-year power struggle between North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper and Republican legislators over control of the elections board in the state. The legislation would largely return elections and uh, ethics enforcement and uh, lobbyist reporting to how it was before Republican lawmakers altered them. Back in December of 2016, in a special session that was called in the lame duck just before Cooper took office in their desperate power grab two years ago, um, they tried to take away powers from the uh, Democratic governor before he could be sworn in after voters had rejected the uh, Republican governor back then, Pat McCrory, that year. Cooper, in response to what they did two years ago with the elections board, where they tried to take control away from the governor, uh, he sued, had to sue, in fact, three different times successfully over the uh, Republican reorganization of the state elections board. He argued that Republicans were only trying to erode his power and cause gridlock. 
on uh, where to uh, put early voting sites and in corruption investigations and so forth. And judges ruled that the Republicans' uh, efforts to rework the board were, in fact, unconstitutional because they failed to give the governor himself control over an executive agency, the state elections board. Uh, in part because the proposals did not allow him to choose a majority of board members, as had always been the case uh, prior to uh, prior to a Democrat, God forbid, taking office. The latest bill now um, has cleared both chambers by wide margins, by the way. It would give the uh, once again give the governor the majority of seats on reconstituted elections boards. Uh, around the state, including the state elections board. Um, and so uh, but it was also it's also noted, by the way, in this legislation that the current board, which was found to be unconstitutional by state court, that one can stay in place at least until they're done figuring out this ninth district GOP absentee election fraud mess. Got it. Got it. Uh, we will continue to follow that story as it moves ahead. But speaking of similar power grabs to what we saw in North Carolina, who wrote the book on this uh, two years ago in Michigan, where Republicans in that legislature have been attempting several of the same stunts uh, as many of those that were found to be unconstitutional in North Carolina, uh, like North Carolina. The Michigan lawmakers are desperately trying to do all of this in a lame duck session before a Democratic governor and attorney general and secretary of state can be sworn in. All of them, by the way, all three of those uh, Democrats are all women, which probably also drives them nuts. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, they're not just taking away power from the governor and the AG and the secretary of state. They're also trying to take it away from voters themselves directly. Michigan Republicans moved on Wednesday to curtail ballot initiatives by advancing a measure limiting how many signatures could come from any one region of the state. Critics call this unconstitutional and a lame duck power grab. Uh, a grab, power grab from voters and from incoming Democratic office holders. The House passed the bill 60 to 49 along mostly party lines on Wednesday in a late night session, hours after hundreds of activists rallied at the Capitol, just like what we saw in uh, Wisconsin a week or so ago. The new legislation was sent then to the GOP controlled Senate for consideration uh, next week. In the last uh, days before this uh, session uh, uh, goes into recess, uh, before the new Democratic officials are sworn in after the first of the year, Republican lawmakers are trying to make it harder in this initiative uh, to mount ballot drives after voters last month legalized marijuana for recreational use, overhauled the process of redrawing congressional and uh, state district lines in the state that the GOP dominated in recent decades uh, and expanding voting options. Therefore, they got to put an end to this uh, this ballot initiative thing. Can't make it quite so easy. The bill will tighten requirements for ballot proposals, uh, and it initially drew opposition from uh, folks on the right and the left. Um, the Right to Life Michigan was none too happy about it. Because they're always putting on, uh, at least trying to get measures onto the ballot. 
Uh, however, th- apparently there were some changes made. I'm not sure what they were that uh, apparently placated the right to life folks. So it's uh, just groups like the ACLU of Michigan, the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees, Labor Union, uh, who called it unworkable, this new scheme, and illegal because signature minimums are laid out in the state constitution. The legislation would affect ballot committees initiating constitutional amendments, bills and referendums by capping the number of signatures that could come from any individual congressional district at just 15 percent. So currently there is no geographic threshold for uh, getting uh, these signatures, collecting them and getting an initiative on the ballot. And uh, the measure could dilute the ability to circulate petitions, primarily in more heavily populated Democratic leaning areas. Petition circulators would also be required to have uh, to file an affidavit with the state if they are paid to gather these signatures. The bill was backed by business groups and Republicans who said it would add much needed transparency and accountability. <laughs> what they care to the petitioning process. Uh-huh. Um, rep, uh, state Rep Yusef Rabi of Ann Arbor said the bill would, quote, send a chilling effect across the state and make it so that people can no longer petition their government. That's not right, he said. The House vote, which occurred during a marathon session, came a week after GOP legislators had maneuvered to significantly scale back minimum wage and paid sick time laws that began as ballot initiatives. We talked about that as well a few days ago. At the behest of the business lobby, the legislature had preemptively adopted the wage and leave measures that were going to go on the ballot, uh, but they preemptively they, they passed them as laws instead of letting the voters vote on them, which then made it easier to change them, to gut them, which, in fact, uh, they did just a few days ago. In this lame duck uh, session. In the lame duck session. After they found out, yeah, voters did want to vote us out, so we're going to screw them anyway. Yep. It's, it's unprecedented. It's never been done before. This will also go to court if Republican Governor Rick Snyder signs the bill uh, before leaving office shortly. And I don't know why he wouldn't. Scott Walker uh, has signed all of these bills. Pat McCrory had signed all of these bills out in North Carolina. Regardless of whether the latest Michigan measure is enacted into law, it already will be tougher. And this is what's galling about this in particular. It's already galling. But it will it will then become tougher to qualify measures for the ballot, uh, which are already going to be hard to get on the ballot in 2020 and in 2022 because of the high turnout in November's midterm elections. The midterm number... I'm sorry, the minimum number of valid signatures needed in Michigan is tied to the number of votes for governor. And because they had such huge turnout in Michigan this year, uh, voting out Rick Snyder, the Republican, and putting in the Democrat, um, they're, they're already going to have to get, they will now roughly need, even if they don't change the law, to get a new uh, a constitutional amendment on the ballot, they will now need 425,000 signatures which is the most ever and well above the 315,000 signatures that were already required in 2016 and 2018 to get something on the ballot. So, yeah, they really don't like direct democracy in Michigan. Well, the voters do, 
But the uh, gerrymandered state Republican state legislators, uh, they really don't like it for some reason. And they're once again trying to strip Democratic, small d Democratic power from the people. I hope the people stop them or throw them out on their ass as soon as they can at the next available opportunity. All right, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Cheer up. It'll be fun. (laughs) Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Oh boy, melting for you is particularly uh, germane from today's Green News Report. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, the least surprising story of the day today. The head of the government agency that monitors climate change says that in nearly two years, he has never discussed the issue with President Donald Trump. I am not surprised at all. You're not surprised? No, I am not. Uh, that is uh, by way of contrast with the previous uh, head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration under uh, Barack Obama, who said that she talked with President Obama about climate change every two or three months. Uh, Obama's science advisor, John Holdren, estimates that over eight years he briefed the president about climate change more than 50 times. Holdren, who is now a professor at uh, Harvard, says there's no sign that President Trump is interested in input from anybody on the scientific facts around climate change. And his uninformed rejection of those facts reflected in his administration's misguided policies on coal, offshore drilling, automotive fuel economy, clean energy R&D, the Paris Agreement and assistance to developing countries on climate change mitigation and adaptation is doing immense damage to the prospects for averting a wholly unmanageable degree of global climate change. And that is the introduction to today's Green News Report. Arctic is experiencing the most unprecedented transition in human history. Very bad news in the latest Arctic report card. Coal State Democratic Senator gets top energy committee position. Washington State Governor unveils ambitious climate change legislation. Plus, I want the cleanest air and the cleanest water on the planet. I want crystal clean water. Trump EPA rolls back yet another major water protection rule. All of those rollbacks and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. When you look at China and when you look at other countries where they have very... You know, foul air. They have not good air. Yes, we know what foul means. You are a really not good president. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I think you understated it. I think it's not very bad news in the Arctic. I think it's very 
Very bad news in the Arctic. (laughs) Okay, we'll take it. The Arctic is in bad shape, and that has global consequences in faster sea level rise, faster global warming, and more extreme weather. That's according to the latest Arctic report card out this week, an annual update on changes in the Arctic issued by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA finds that the Arctic has lost 95% of its oldest, thickest sea ice, which is severely impacting land and marine species. 2018 will likely be the second hottest year in the Arctic after 2016. And the five warmest years on record in the Arctic have all occurred in just the last five years. Just to be clear, you said that 95% of the old Arctic ice has been melted. Right. In a press conference, NOAA scientist Emily Osborne explained that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. What we're seeing is that the Arctic is warming at twice the rate as the rest of the globe. That results in a change in the, in the pattern of our jet stream, and the jet stream is impacting our weather throughout the year. Impacts include extreme weather that stalls in place, like record drought in the West, or extreme rainfall events like Hurricane Harvey. The rapidly disintegrating sea ice is also attracting shipping traffic and mining interests to the region, and therefore more pollution. The Arctic now has more microplastic pollution than any other ocean basin. Report co-author Don Perovich summed up the Report. One of the big takeaways from this year is it really shows how interconnected things are, how the Arctic is a system, and we're really starting to see cascading effects that we don't fully understand. Not only cascading effects, but feedback loops. As the white ice disappears, it's replaced by darker water and land, which absorbs heat from the sun instead of reflects it back. And that, in turn, creates even more warming that melts even more ice. Right. This is very bad. In other news, the Trump Environmental Protection Agency this week proposed rolling back yet another major Obama-era public health standard, the Waters of the United States rule that protected waterways and wetlands that feed into the drinking water supply of one-third of Americans. It was aggressively opposed by Republican state attorneys general and some folks in the agriculture, real estate, and oil industries and golf course owners like... President Trump. Huh. In a press conference, this is how acting administrator Andrew Wheeler characterized the Obama standard. They claimed it was in the best interest of water quality, but it was really about power, power in the hands of the federal government over farmers, developers, and landowners. Also, an EPA spokesman claimed that the agency had no data on the impact of the rollback, but E&E News, via a public records request, obtained that data that doesn't exist, showing the agency determined 20% of streams and 50% of wetlands would lose protection under the new rule. This is a proposed rule. The public comment period is now open at regulations.gov. And it will likely face years of litigation. Good. In the United States Senate, Democratic Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has granted the top spot on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee to Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Bad. A major supporter of the coal industry and the committee's highest ranking member. This after midterm election losses forced a committee leadership reshuffling. As climate activist Bill McKibben put it on Twitter, quote, Yes, we have to change everything to deal with climate change, but no. 
no, that doesn't include seniority rules in the Senate. And putting Joe Manchin on an energy committee. You know, for all the complaints about Nancy Pelosi, why aren't Democrats complaining about Chuck Schumer in the Senate? Finally, there is some good news. Washington State's Democratic Governor Jay Inslee this week unveiled an ambitious package of legislation to tackle climate change that includes phasing out fossil fuels like natural gas and coal from the state's electricity supply by 2045. There's no carbon tax or fee included in the governor's proposed legislation. That's after the oil industry spent $30 million to defeat a state carbon tax in the November election. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide, please, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yep. Uh, Jay Inslee, by the way, governor up there in in Washington, he's uh, one of well, he he's made it clear, I think, that he's interested in running for president. Oh, he's made year. it very clear he's very interested. He hasn't announced yet. But um, who isn't running for president at this point? I think that's the bigger question as far as uh, Democrats go. It seems like every single Democrat is running. Yeah, and Inslee says he wants to make climate change the forefront of the 2020 election. So we'll see if he succeeds at that. Well, anyway, there's some good news uh, for our uh, listener friends up there in uh, in Seattle on KODX. See, it's not all terrible today. I agree. Uh, all right, uh, that's it. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer Desi Doyen and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I hope you will find, follow, and share what we do here on the Facebooks and the Twitters. You can find me at The Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue with our uh, independent work here every day over your public airwaves. We don't get no funding from ProPublica. I'm just saying. All right, that's it. Until we meet again at bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.